0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 142 of the Reds Unrestricted Podcast. I'm your host, David Comerford, and I'm joined by Jamie Barton to discuss Jordan Henderson's move to Saudi Arabia.
1: This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts.
0: The last week, we talked about Fabinho's imminent exit and the reports that Henderson wanted to join him in the Saudi Pro League. Um, Al Etifak, who is obviously managed by uh, Stephen Gerrard. And I predicted at the time that Henderson would actually end up staying at Liverpool. Um, But earlier this week, it was reported that a fee of £12 had been agreed between the two clubs. Um, And then on Saturday, there was a report from James Pearce in the Athletic that Henderson had undergone his medical um, in Manchester. So every indication is that this move is about to go through. So we thought we'd do a full episode uh, talking about this transfer and how Liverpool responds. Slightly different focus points um from us t- compared to last week. Um we couldn't really sort of let the the captain go without kind of devoting a full a full sort of thirty minutes or so to um discussing his departure. Um I wanna start Jamie by talking about the um sort of the hypocrisy of Henderson moving to Saudi Arabia, let's say. um, I sort of debated whether we should do this or not, purely on the basis that, you know, given that I'm not a member of the LGBT community. Um, obviously, you know, I support them wholeheartedly, but sometimes you, you don't want to necessarily try and make points on people's behalf. However, I think I, I have sort of read um, a couple of articles And i'm going to share a couple of snippets from those as well and i just i do think it's important that we that we get into it and that we don't overlook it and because a lot of Liverpool fans sort of and right now because of that um so if we just start by kind of outlining what um the sort of conditions are for the LGBT community in Saudi Arabia um so basically, according to a report from uh, Human Rights Watch um, earlier this year, Saudi Arabia has no written laws concerning sexual orientation or gender identity. But judges use principles of uncodified Islamic law to sanction people suspected of committing sexual relations outside marriage, including adultery, extramarital and homosexual sex. If individuals are engaging in such relationships online, judges and prosecutors utilize vague provisions of the country's anti cybercrime law. That criminalize online activity impinging on quotes public order religious values public public morals and privacy so that is basically the the country that henderson is moving to contrast that to what he said um ahead of a game in 2021 i think it was in liverpool's program he said i believe when you see something that's clearly wrong and makes another human being feel excluded you should stand shoulder to shoulder with them you also have a responsibility to educate yourself better around the challenges they experience That's where my own position on homophobia in football is rooted. Before I'm a footballer, a parent, husband, a son, a brother, and a friend to the people in my life who matter so much to me. The idea that any of them would feel excluded from playing or attending a football match simply for being and identifying who they are blows my mind. So basically, we've got Henderson, who has made himself an ally of the community, um, betraying that trust. Um, So like I said um, a couple of moments ago, I've read... You know a couple of articles from sort of journalists and, and uh, members of the community talking about why they feel betrayed um and just want to share a couple of snippets um kivo neil from the Athletics said um henderson said he understood how we felt and he wanted to be one of the people driving the change to make our lives easier to be an ally he wanted to make people feel like they belong not just at anfield but far beyond and he did um she mentions in the piece how she sort of she'd be going to anfield with her girlfriend and she'd feel sort of worried about holding hands for for the reaction that it would have um and obviously saying that that was there had been a sense of belonging and henderson's undone so much of the good work that he has done Um, and there was also a twitter account called and could he play Uh, that shared an article about it and quite an important point here too by choosing to take the millions of saudi arabia jordan henderson is playing right into the hands of the very worst people He's effectively saying that he didn't believe what he said because his beliefs weren't strong enough to stand up to the cash. Um, So just a couple of things to finish on this, and then I'll bring you in, Jamie. Um, The reason that we're talking about this from Henderson's standpoint, not from um, Steven Gerrard, Robbie Fowler, Fabinho, Roberto Firmino, is because Henderson went out of his way to take on responsibility to that community. When he um when he wrote things like he did earlier, and basically he's abdicated that responsibility now. So I think that's why it's extra prominent. He is also obviously the Liverpool captain too, um, and it feels as if there's sort of an extra onus on him because of that to embody the values of the club. Um, so I wanted to say that. I also want to say that I think it's been, without getting into it too much, it's it's certainly been a week that or or a couple of weeks that i've sort of emphasized really why you can't really have any footballers as role models unfortunately i think a lot of people who did previously idolize jordan henderson um, i've sort of really you know struggling with this as well obviously in a, in a less significant way but yeah jamie i mean what do you make of, of henderson's decision to to go to a country where as we saw from that snippet earlier you know the LGBT community is oppressed in light of everything that he has said and done previously
1: yeah I mean absolutely what you've touched on the the, the hypocrisy is is the element that stands out to me and so obviously I personally have a lot of issues with with anyone Fabinho, Firmino, Gerard, whoever uh, uh, playing and, and managing in that league I've seen a lot of kind of whataboutery i think on on social media particularly a kind of the the argument that uh that uh, members of the lgbtq plus community have it very difficult here in the uk and that is very true That is, the, the, I to deny that. but it is as people like kiva O'Neill have touched on it is a completely different level in in saudi arabia and so i know that she kind of expressed the, the concern that she wouldn't be able to go and support uh, a Saudi Arabian team in Saudi Arabia. If she wanted to go with her girlfriend, that's just not an option. And obviously, in the UK, it, 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 it could be very difficult for people. But it's as I say, it's on a completely different level. The thing, the thing that that really stands out to me and really concerns me and makes me honestly feel quite depressed about the whole situation is is the next the next Jordan Henderson or the next who we thought Jordan Henderson was who. Sees these kind of issues, and I and I I believe that Henderson, I don't think he was lying in in what he said before. I just think that's been overtaken by by the money. And so the next the next Jordan Henderson who wants to speak out on something like this, are they thinking, well, I was going to, but there is a chance I might want to play in Saudi Arabia in the future, and do I, do I want to kind of lock myself out of that? I've seen what happened to Henderson, the backlash that that he got maybe I just kind of keep quiet on this one and, and, and ride it out and, and try not to speak up in case it jeopardizes any potential, potential future move. And that I find deeply, deeply depressing. It's, it's something that we've seen a lot with, um, with, with gay footballers coming out in, in kind of major leagues in the UK, the backlash that, that they have often got uh, on, on social media and particularly in, in mainstream media looking kind of backwards a few years. Um that's the reason, presumably, that that more kind of gay or LGBTQ plus footballers don't speak out and come out and and, and talk about their, their personal lives. And that that ability to not speak your mind because of the fear of the backlash when something might happen in the future, I find that very, very depressing to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, first of all, the point you make about everything is is by degrees. So, you know, no one is pretending that the UK it is sort of a complete safe haven by any means, but we do sometimes lose that perspective with like you you mentioned all, all this, you know, what aboutism basically. Um it is just a matter of sort of how intense things are. And you can't I think it's just an attempt to distract from the real issues when 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 that kind of happens, um and just to, you know, take the magnifying glass away a little bit. And I think, you know, it's crucial what you say as well about how Henderson he he was an outlier in the sense that he he went as far as he did. And obviously he deserves credit for doing that. It's just now that he's making this move, I think A, it undoes all of it, and B, it kind of cheapens what he has done anyway, because absolutely it showed that um basically when the right offer came along he was willing to basically suspend those values and then the whole thing now just seems like a bit of a pr stunt to be honest um so if we talk about the move more generally i mean how it's crazy that we're in this position first of all you know to be sitting here talking about henderson not only leaving liverpool this summer but you know leaving european football altogether. um it's pretty clear that it's financially motivated there's Reports suggesting initially there was talk of, you know, 700k a week or something ridiculous. I think that's now been dialed back to about 350k or something like that, which is, um I think, a healthy advance on, it, on his current Liverpool wage. But why, I mean, is that money alone sort of a compelling reason to, to leave Liverpool at the moment? I mean, why do you think he was sort of open to the move, I suppose, beyond beyond the finance or do you think it is literally a 100% you know financially motivated uh, manoeuvre
1: yeah it's 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 difficult I I think when when the news initially broke I saw a lot of kind of chat on on social media and stuff and I don't actually know whether this was based in anything that came from what the journalist said that that this was the kind of money that could see him buy Sunderland Football Club in the future or something like that and to me, I mean, I don't really know. I'm no, I'm no economist. I'm not planning to buy a foot, football club myself. But the the money, even when it was 700,000 that was being spoken of, still didn't really kind of add up to me in terms of that that amount of money that would be required to, to kind of go back to Southern and buy the club. So that never really made any sense to me. That didn't add up, really. The, the, the money that we're now talking about, the 350,000, I think because my understanding is because of, uh, how how players are taxed there is that it would still be a, a it would still quadruple his wage that he's earning in the UK so I mean that is obviously uh, a huge draw I think it's probably complemented slightly by by um, basically the ability to play and he will absolutely be the number one name on the team sheet there I I no expert and I have not heard of any of the other players that play for that team, to be completely honest with you. Um, he knows he'll have the backing of the manager. Um, it's, it's his marquee signing. It's someone he's played with. It's someone he clearly has a good relationship with. So there's all of that in the mix, and it's been made pretty clear that, that Klopp has told him that his role in the squad is going to be at least reduced next season where he to stay at Liverpool. And so there is a playing time element. But to me, I I can't see the the, the appeal. Yes, it's playing time, but... It's in a league that is very much still developing. It's a league that, that it's not grown out of nothing. It, it, it didn't just start last year. This league, but I mean, to all intents and purposes, from a European perspective, it's it's not been of any note um, to someone growing up here in the UK until basically until Cristiano Ronaldo moved there. Um, and so the playing time thing doesn't really stack up for me because, yes, you're playing, but is is it really kind of any kind of Competition that you would have been interested in before the money was introduced. So, I'm still in shock. I still don't understand it. I, I, I think it just ends up with the money for me. I think that's basically really the only thing that can kind of, kind of motivate this
0: move. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, for the most part. I have to say, I think, um, I mean, the whole thing about sort of the wage is like, you know, people say. He can go from sort of securing maybe one or two generations to securing multiple uh, generations, and I kind of get that. In for kind of his immediate uh, future, I think you know I don't necessarily have any sympathy for a footballer moving to quadruple their wage when when their wage is you know astronomically high anyway, and the lifestyle that they can enjoy is kind of beyond what most of us could conceive yeah. of, regardless. Basically. Um, and you also have to consider at a certain point, you know, even if this does mean that Henderson's great grandkids and great great grandkids, uh, you know, given certain luxuries, um, at what cost basically does that come? Um, and if you allow yourself to be bought in this manner, then obviously, you know, you've come, you've made that choice, you committed to that, but I think. A lot of us wanted to think that Henderson had kind of more about him than that. To be honest, based on everything we discussed earlier, Um, I think I, I think it's not one hundred percent money. I think it's mostly money, and and there's no way getting around that. I I do think though that if this offer comes in and Henderson's a couple of years younger, he he would say no, Um, and that is all basically because of his situation at Liverpool regarding playing time. I think. He's seen Dominic Sabaslai come in. Sabaslai is going to start basically in that um, right side of number eight position that Henderson has occupied um, in recent times. So I think, you know, he's seen that. And who knows what's going to happen regarding sort of Harvey Elliott. Is he going to play more minutes? And I think there was a report from Fabrizio Romano that um, Henderson, when he spoke to Klopp about wanting to make this move or about why his kind of role was, that Klopp told him, that his game time would be limited. So I think maybe there was a bit of an element of of phasing him out. And then he started to think, you know what, maybe it is time to consider this offer. And I guess that makes it more palatable with the whole kind of Euro situation. You know, I I sort of said initially that Henderson wouldn't go because he's basically forfeiting his place in the Euro squad next year, last chance to win a major tournament with England. But I think he probably thought, you know what, if I'm not playing as much as Liverpool, I probably won't be in the squad anyway. So I may as well just kind of make this move for it for all the other reasons. Um, I suppose. So we're gonna talk a bit about kind of um the sporting side of things, whether it was um a mistake to kind of to keep him as long as Liverpool did, what Liverpool do now. Um so we'll kind of look to the past and the future a little bit. But in the in the immediate, do you think Henderson has as damaged his legacy um with not only i suppose the the betrayal that we talked about and how it doesn't you know it doesn't just chime with the values of i guess liverpool as a city um and obviously you know just leaving as he has in, in the middle of of the summer um and kind of basically pushing well it's you can debate the extent to which he pushed with the move so there's obviously that side of things and then what are your kind of final reflections on his Liverpool career?
1: Yeah, I think I think it does damage his like damage his legacy. I think obviously what we touched on with, with the LGBTQ angle and, and the, the, the how hurt that community and, and people even beyond that community feel, I think that is impossible to get away from. I also think from a from a sporting perspective it it paints what happened in twenty twenty one in in a new light with his with his new deal. I think it was clear then that the the kind of atletico madrid rumors that were swirling were were put out by his camp and that, that was basically kind of i think brushed under the carpet really and and kind of forgotten about once the new deal was signed i was i was someone who who did want him to be new to be signed to the new deal at the time and i think that was partly influenced by how strongly klopp came out eventually and said that he wanted him around and that that he basically seemed like he pushed through the deal himself and kind of went above and beyond Michael Edwards and and the, the committee that were involved normally with those sorts of deals. Um, but I think it almost paints it in a new light when you see him basically doing it again two seasons later and you start to kind of wonder about the, the respect that he has for the manager's plans, for the team's future, for how the supporters feel when you get two times in three transfer windows he's really kind of upsetting the apple cart and really kind of putting especially this season serious serious plans in jeopardy basically because of what we've touched on over the 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 money and any maybe potential playing time argument and so that really does kind of tarnish his reputation i think i think looking back on 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 his career generally i mean from a sport from a sporting perspective it, it has been glittering really it's he's the most successful captain since I mean I don't know but he's certainly more successful in terms of trophies than than Steven Gerrard was um I think he's been aside from what I touched on a a fantastic uh, leader in the dressing room it's clear that everyone looked up to him the kind of systems that were in place where players would go to him or to Milner rather than going to the manager when they had issues I'm sure made Klopp's life a whole lot easier, and I'm sure he's very thankful for that. Um, and so, the the kind of system that that the club had in place, and that he was such a massive part of, really worked for at least the last five, six, seven years. So, from a port, from a sporting perspective, he's he's won it all. He's he's led one of the greatest teams in Liverpool's history, the greatest team that I've ever seen play for Liverpool. Um, and so there is all that to consider but as you see with so many so much in football players are so often judged on the last thing that they do so sterling was a brilliant player for us i i I think sterling was fantastic and played so even he was great at man city and probably better but i think one of his best seasons ever playing was was that 13 14 season where he finished the season playing as kind of almost the number 10 for us at at the tip of a diamond coutinho Again, fantastic, fantastic Liverpool career. Really kind of ushered in the start of the the, the d Klopp era and, and was the best player in our team for two years at least. But players like that, you, I don't think about that when I think about Sterling. I don't think about that when I think about Coutinho. I think about the last thing that they did for us. And so I think about, obviously, all the controversy that surrounded Sterling's move. Philippe Coutinho's mystery back injury these are the things that come to mind when, when I think about these players not what they did beforehand and I do I, I I am concerned and I do worry and maybe I shouldn't be concerned maybe it's only fair that that is how we will remember Jordan Henderson beforehand.
0: I think that's a great point and you know you could also I suppose throw Fernando Torres in there you know a lot of people would dispute yeah. you know some people call him like an icon or a legend and then a lot of people say you know what no he's um you know, look at the manner in which he left the club um, and and that kind of taints all of it. And I think we're seeing sort of a maybe a more multifaceted version of that here. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if if I talk about like Henderson as a footballer, first of all, I think obviously the high point is that 1920 season. He's the football writer's player of the year. I think that award, you know, is obviously motivated a lot by, kind of his presence, his leadership, how he kind of epitomised the spirit of that Liverpool team, which, you know, obviously dubbed mentality monsters, just their ability to turn games around, constantly find the late winner. It was one of the most kind of impressive feats of kind of, sort of, I, I think psychologically, it, it was one of the most sort of um, awe-inspiring kind of titles any team had won. Um, and I think Henderson really was at the forefront of that. and People sort of recognised him, in that regard, they recognised what he'd done off the field, all the sort of the campaigns um, he'd led around that, obviously, you know, with, with the pandemic and things like that at that time. Um, and I think a lot of journalists also made the point that, you know what, let's actually talk about, you know, who he was as a footballer as well. And I think, you know, that version of Jordan Henderson, um, sort of, I think probably from 1718 to 1920 is, is the peak of, of Jordan Henderson, to be honest, loads of kind of historic um performances within there that kind of shouldn't be overlooked just as we focus on, you know, the leader that he was. Um and you know, l- let's not just kind of paint him, I suppose, 100 percent as kind of this um as that kind of dressing room presence. You know, he, he was also kind of he, he also kind of earned his very much earned his place in that club midfield for a long time. I think in the past couple of years that changed a bit, um, to be honest, you know, in terms of whether he should be kind of starting as much in an ideal world. But certainly in that peak window, he was um I think he, he he did always kind of remain underrated as a footballer, even if he did kind of be if he was celebrated a little bit more. Um to be honest though, like we it feels almost if we should be talking about this for longer, but I don't know about, about you, Jamie. It just almost feels a little bit hollow right now. Like just and still a little bit kind of low in a way. Um and I guess we'll see how how things age and and whether you know Henderson does almost follow the path of of those that have come before. And um, my instinct is that he sort of will, and that um he won't necessarily have the the legacy and be celebrated as as much as it looked like he was going to be before all this came out. Um, but yeah, at the moment it, it's just it's kind of hard to um to sort of you know I think we all expected him to leave with so much fanfare and reverence and he has kind of, I think, forfeited that a bit with, with the manner in, in which he's chosen to leave the club. Um, and that is obviously a huge shame. And, and that's just, you know, maybe other people view it differently. Um, but that's, pe- you know, my personal feelings, are just that it's hard to sort of wish him well, to be honest, as he leaves. And I know that sounds like a pretty, you know, brutal thing to say, but like just, I think it, it, it's just very... Um I mean, you used to wear it depressing before it it does feel like that you know it, it's um it just feels like a bit of a sad state of affairs at the moment, the whole thing um to touch on the new deal um that you mentioned there, Jamie, I think it's clear now that that was a mistake. I'll hold my hands up and say, like you, I wanted Henderson to be given a new contract, um, and I think I can still make the point that it was a mistake because you know, as fans, you know, we are inherently guided by sentiment, but I suppose we rely on the clubs to take the decisions that we wouldn't necessarily make to to be kind of that ruthless and, and to adhere to their model, to, you know, prioritise the business sense and things like that. And it would have been a deeply unpopular decision. I think it would have um, angered the manager, but he would have, I think he would have dealt with it. And I think, you know, it might have been better in, in the long run. I think there was a report this week from Chris Bascom in the Telegraph that Michael Edwards and his team were basically nudging FSG, saying, "You know what? No, we need to kind of take our money ball approach to this. Look at the age Henderson is; is a mistake to give him a new a new deal." So I think it was from another, it was in 2021, so it was four years from then. Um, but Klopp, like you say, Jamie, um, the report said he made a sort of critical intervention, and then from then, sort of, he managed to secure the deal. I think henderson's been on one of the highest wages in the squad but he hasn't been one of the top performers i think he, he played his part in that quadruple chasing season even though he did look like he was on the down slope in his career and then last season i think it was just a you know we struggled on both sides of the ball and i think it was just a case of if liverpool had anyone anyone kind of more compelling which which they didn't such as the dearth and midfield options then i don't think he would have been playing um so to be honest maybe the natural part and point was a couple of years ago if we're sort of looking back at it like that and again hindsight is a wonderful thing um, but you'd have to say the predictions that were made by kind of the analysts and the people looking at it from kind of more of a a cold you know cold and sort of realistic points of view have been vindicated a bit and, and we'll see if that kind of leads to a a change in the club's approach um, obviously that summer also saw new deals for Fabinho for and Van Dyke. I think the Fabinho one also, looks like it might have been a mistake. Um, and then the Van Dyke one, the jury's probably still out on that. Um, to finish up, then, Jamie, um, do you think Liverpool need, uh, you know, I think it's given that they need a the new number six to replace Fabinho. Do you think they need an additional player um, to replace Henderson? And what kind of player um, would you be looking at if so?
1: Yeah, I think they do. And I think it's easy to look at where Henderson played last season. And and kind of jump to to the conclusion that oh well he was playing this kind of especially at the end of the season this kind of right sided eight in a, in a in a box midfield it's easy to kind of see that and and jump to the conclusion well that guy left we need a new player who can play in that position I don't think that's the case I think that's already been signed in in Dominic Solli as you, as you touched on earlier and I think to me Harvey Elliott looks a far better fit. Than than Henderson to to play there as the kind of second second choice. So I think we're covered in that area. I think what's really interesting is whether in a in a parallel universe where all of this stuff with Fabinho comes out before it came out about Jordan Henderson, whether Henderson kind of thinks about sticking around and 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 staying as the kind of the the backup number six or even the start, probably start starting number six at least at the beginning of the season away at Chelsea. That obviously didn't happen. It, it happened the way around that it did. And so both seemingly clearly on their way out. But to me, the, the hole that that leaves is is another number six. I don't think we have anyone who, who is capable of playing there or at least starting there at the beginning of the season. I think Bajcetic is the man who I'd look at going forward. Um, but one, he's very young, and very raw. And two, he's still injured. So that's obviously not a goer for the beginning of the season. So I think the way I look at it is we need two two number sixes, two players who can play that role. And and I'm not the first one to say it should be uh, someone who we can develop, a Lavia, for example, and also someone who can come in and, and play that first game and play the first six months of the season, whatever. Who that is, is obviously far, far trickier. And so... I'm no scout, um, and it's very difficult to touch on on who that would be. Just just taking kind of, and it's not the best metric, but if you're trying to sign someone who's proven, then you'd expect them to cost quite a lot. So just taking transfer marks, top uh, defensive midfielders, the first nine, uh, I think, are basically unachievable. That's Rice, Rodri, Chiwameni, Enzo Fernandez, Caicedo, Kimmich, maybe, but probably not, Gimmarais, Ugate and Tonali and so they're all kind of not going to happen. The next one, number 10 is Amadou Anana, which gives you a sense of the kind of the the, the quality that is available beyond those initial nine, those big nine. And then the, I mean number 11 is Fabinho. So you're left in a really tricky position in terms of who that player is when you're trying to sign, and sign an established established player who's going to come in and fill that position straight away. The the names that have been mentioned, none of them thrill me. I don't think I'm alone in that. Uh, of of what we've heard, maybe Sofian Amrabat is is the one, um, alongside someone like Alavia. Uh, there's talk of Florentino Luiz, but without having seen the player too much, I'm wary of spending the kind of money that's being talked about for him uh, on a position where I think and I hope by Chetic within two years time should be our kind of starter there. And so the kind of money that's been talked about, Amrabat, kind of 25, 30, 35 million, seems far more reasonable, 26 years old. So you think maybe in two, three years time, he'd be kind of coming off the tail end of his peak and then by Bacetsic could step in there. And so that makes far more sense to me than kind of spending 70 odd million on, the names we're being talked about, Decoré. Seems like a very interesting player, but seventy million sounds like crazy money to me. And so that's where I kind of fall. But <laughs> it's it, it's I'm not the first person to say that that idea it doesn't really thrill me. But it seems like the most kind of pragmatic approach to the problem.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll certainly obviously do um, a full podcast look on at kind of the the player that Liverpool bring in um, in that defensive midfield or whether it is. You know, Jake Ducore looks like um, one of the favourites at the moment as we record this. Um, I think um, that Liverpool can actually get away without replacing Henderson with only signing one more midfielder. Um, And I completely understand the inclination to to bring in an additional one. I think we've obviously seen last season even 10 midfielders wasn't enough um, to get us through the whole season. But, you know... I, and and in fairness, I think it would be sort of, if you count um, Artur, if you count um, the three players who left as free agents, if you count um Cavalli who's gone out on low and then Fabinho and Henderson, I mean, what's that? I mean, that is that sort of, is that seven midfielders leaving um, and then you'd only be bringing three in to replace them? On paper, it sounds like a bit, you know, it sounds dangerous, but I think we can get away with it. And I think it's because we need to adjust to having players who are actually going to be available, to be honest. Um Man City, you look at their squad, they've currently got, I think, six midfielders and and two of those are Foden and Bernardo Silva, who some people would maybe classify as wingers. And the reason they can get away with that is because they don't have, you know, this kind of swathe of players who, you know, are injury prone. And I think, you know, Touchwood, McAllister and Salvaslay have got really good injury records. Um, Javi Elliott last season, I think he'd be the player who kind of, Almost takes on those Henderson minutes. You know he was in the squad, um, fifty-one times. Only Mohamed Salah was in the squad that many times of you know every Liverpool player. Um, he played in forty-one consecutive matches. Um, you know we had that sort of horror injury a couple of years ago. But his availability last season was brilliant. Curtis Jones, I think, hopefully he he's got his kind of injury problems behind him. I think they were kind of freak issues that he was dealing with, so we shouldn't read too much into them. Um, so I think basically for those number eight roles, you've got a couple of players for each position. Anywhere else in the squad, you'd say two players per position is fair enough. Um, you've also got Thiago who can who can do them. I think he could also potentially fill in as a six from time to time by Seteich as well. Um, and then obviously you've got you know the new first choice six. I think that'd be okay, and I think that might be what we see Liverpool do just because they also need a centre back. Um, and you know who knows where they're going to be at kind of net spend wise. Um, so, I think that that might be the pro- approach that Liverpool take. I, I also think it's important to stress that if you bring in kind of another player, do they kind of restrict the minutes of a player like Bysetich or Elliot and then you kind of squander in their potentially? You know, I think I'd much rather see them given kind of the room to grow as kind of the natural second choices. And I think, you know, I can see why Liverpool fans are scarred by what's gone on in midfield in recent times, but. Generally speaking, the two players per position approach, if those two players are going to be kind of available most of the time, then I think you're going to be okay with that. I'm not going to complain, obviously, Liverpool get um, that kind of additional midfielder, and you know, along with the number six, which is the critical one. But if it comes to the cost of a centre-back, I don't think that's necessarily the right approach. I think number six is top priority right now. And then um, I'd say a centre-back is needed after that. Um, and maybe if there's money left over, then we look to do something. But um, I don't think it's necessarily essential. But anyway, we're, we're going to leave it there uh, for this podcast. Thanks very much, everyone, uh, for listening. And um, Like I said earlier, it looks like we're basically coming up to the second half of the transfer window. It feels like we're in the calm before the storm at the moment. So when we see um, things kind of develop, when we see a new player coming, we'll be sure to cover it another podcast, much like we did uh, for McAllister and Sobersly. But yeah, we're going to be back next week for another episode. Um, And until then, take care and thanks for listening.